Kelly and Kelly. This is Record Club, the podcast where people tell personal stories about how seminal albums impacted their lives. My name is Louise Burns. I'm a musician, music producer, and your host. And on this show, you're going to hear stories in front of audiences from our Record Club nights. At these musical gatherings, we pick one classic album and invite storytellers to share their tales of how that album intersected with their lives. You're not going to hear deep critiques or musical dissections, just honest stories from passionate music fans told live. For our last episode of the season, we're telling stories that celebrate an archetypal artist whose fifth studio album was well beyond this planet. A glam rock classic that interwove glitzy, sweeping melodrama with apocalyptic visions. More importantly, it marked the first time vision and execution met in an ambitious fashion for this phenom of rock. Your Record Club album for this episode is David Bowie's The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars. Ziggy played guitar Jamming good with Wed and Gilly And the spiders from Mars Right now we're talking about David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust and the spiders from Mars. Can I hear an amen? <laughs> Became the special man Then we were Ziggy's band Released in the summer of 1972, the world was waking up to a hangover of a tumultuous era. The 1960s was a cocktail of political activism marked by violence and the looming threat of an atomic Cold War. It was also the dawn of the Space Age. As Apollo 11 touched down onto the moon at the end of the decade, it heralded new possibilities and sparked the cultural imagination of musicians like David Bowie. The rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars was an otherworldly snapshot of a global moment from space. Its photographer, an extraterrestrial rock star named Ziggy Stardust. I'm a space As an alter ego of Bowie's, Ziggy Stardust makes first contact with listeners on Moon Age Daydream. He was a collage of inspirations drawing from Stanley Kubrick's film A Clockwork Orange, William S. Burroughs' novel The Wild Boys, to musicians like Iggy Pop, Lou Reed, Mark Boland of T-Rex, and the lesser-known legendary Stardust Cowboy. The album was pieced together with many of the songs already recorded over several different sessions, loosely held together by an androgynous bisexual alien in a shimmering skin-tight bodysuit with bright auburn hair and lots of makeup. This gender-bending persona completely rattled the social norms of culture and the sexual politics at the time. Among those rattled was our first storyteller, Anthony Casey. Anthony, now a celebrated drag performer, was just a kid who loved Ziggy Stardust. He just couldn't put a finger on why. This is like a series of vignettes, maybe like a, maybe like a bildungsroman, <laughs> of uh, how David Bowie absolutely changed my life. And I don't care how dramatic that sounds. 
Um, I grew up in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. None of you have been there. It's fine. It's remote as fuck. And it's like a fine place to grow up, but maybe not um, for somebody who likes to wear silk scarves and blazers. So if you can picture like a very wood paneled 80s basement and me doing that like five centimeters from the screen thing at the TV, hoping to either watch Red Shoe Diaries or Blue Nui or Queer as Folk. <laughs> uh, I'm skipping through and I get to like, uh, I think it was much music, definitely, well, maybe much more music. Anyway, it was one of those retrospective shows where they have a band on talking about their influences and it was one of the the bands from the late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, yeah, so they showed a scene from the Ziggy Stardust documentary, rockumentary, if you will, at the Hammersmith Odeon. And the first song that I heard, uh, it was like right at the end, and it was Rock and Roll Suicide. And they cut in right when he screams, uh, oh no, love, you're not alone. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not alone. Because it just touched me inside. Because it's very primal the way he screams it. And I was just really feeling the gig that night. Uh, and so instantly I was like hooked. I'm like, I don't care what like, softcore sex I'm going to miss on TV. I'm going to watch this guy or uh, person on, on screen right now. And then they talked about how at the end of that concert series, uh, he killed the Ziggy Stardust character. And I was like, but I just got to know him. <laughs> this isn't fair. So from that moment, I just got super obsessed with David Bowie, uh, and I got really into that album, uh, obviously, because that's why we're here. But uh, yeah, like Rock and Roll Suicide was the weirdest song that I'd ever heard up until that point, because the first two CDs that I ever bought were uh, Vince Gill's Greatest Hits. and Mariah Carey Daydream. <laughs> uh, so it was a very like broad departure. I mean, my dad uh, is a musician and magician by, well, not by trade, because we had to pay bills, so he was a plumber. <laughs> but if you ask him, he is a magician and a musician. Uh, and I grew up with him like on the road uh, in New England, and uh, doing Carol Channing impressions, which is not related to this story, but I think it adds character. <laughs> and so it was a very traditional musical upbringing, and then I hear this song, and it just completely blows my mind. So then for years, and this is, you know, when, like, we're kind of getting the internet in Cape Breton. So if it takes me 20 minutes to download a photo of David Bowie in, like, a full-knit Masoni friggin' pantsuit that maybe is $300 pajamas, um, I'm going to download that. And I had a folder just of looks of his. The only album that I listened to for years was Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars, and then would look at these photos. And then I went off to college, and then I had a computer lab at uh, my disposal, and then found a list of, um, it, it was a list of like, you know, gay musicians. And uh, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> I was really into this list. <laughs> and so they get to David Bowie and they're like, well, David Bowie, you know, he's like, I don't know why I'm doing a, like a weird, you know, construction worker voice, but David Bowie is, uh, he's bisexual. So he's, uh, he likes boys and girls. And I was nearly slid out of my chair in the lab and was like, Oh, that's, oh, people do that. Yes. 
Because when you grow up in Nova Scotia, it's kind of black or white, but you know, you get outside and you're like, oh, everything's like a nice gray. <laughs> Uh, and then, so then after that, yeah, and then that's when I, you know, really decided, oh, this guy is absolutely my hero. This is the man that I need to model my life after. And then uh, I started incorporating, well, like what I think was incorporating David Bowie day to day. You know, I listened to a lot, like I would, like every Halloween, I would do the Aladdin Sane Thunderbolt. Got into that, got into Let's Dance, got into Diamond Dogs, and was just like, this, he was basically the center of my world, and I kind of kept it a little hidden because everybody was uh, super into this Beyonce character. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I totally love her too. I do now, for sure. <laughs> but her stuff with Sean Paul was not good. Uh, and so there was like lots more I would find myself wearing a lot more colors and, and walking with like maybe like a little more swagger in my step and uh, being able to get on a microphone in front of a bunch of strangers and spill my guts out and not be worried about it or go home and have an anxiety attack and be like everyone thinks I'm weird I have to move out of the city right now uh, like he was he's still an icon to me and uh, I credit my favorite outfit in college which was a hot pink t-shirt that was ripped just so so that my nipple kind of showed a little bit and jeans that were much tighter than these uh, yellow and red sneakers a seven foot black and white checkered scarf and top coat on my nails not actual nail polish because lord knows I don't want to look effeminate <laughs> but just a little something to add some shine to the ensemble. <laughs> and as I got more comfortable sort of embracing this like living out loud persona, I also discovered uh, drag queens, um, which you heard at the top of the, the liner notes that I am chandelier, so thank you. Uh, drag queens do it for uh, drink tickets and uh, validation from strangers so thank you for those cheers uh, and uh, no word of a lie this, uh, this isn't a joke this isn't an exaggeration I was at uh, a friend of mine's and we were going to go out that night and we we're like oh let's put on makeup let's play with some makeup tonight and I was all I was like yeah let's do it absolutely <laughs> like 100% sold I already brought my own eyeliner pencil and I, we were listening, it's not Ziggy Stardust, we were listening to uh, Modern Love, and I was putting on some eyeliner, and I swear to God, I'm not embarrassed to tell you that I got a boner, <laughs> and was trying to hide it, ever just so, <laughs> was still in the mirror like, oh, I gotta be a good night, guys. So I kind of felt maybe this is my calling. I should probably do this. So, uh, you know, you get into drag and then you have your, your icons, your, your keystones where you're like, oh, it's Barbara Streisand, it's Liza Minnelli. Mine was Carol Channing and David Bowie. <laughs> same, same, right? Yeah. Uh, so let's just painting a very full Technicolor portrait of my life right now. But I will briefly talk about when he died because that was incredibly sad, and I'm still holding it together, um, barely some days. When I, I didn't listen to uh, any of his music for three to four months afterwards, 
because I literally couldn't bring myself to do it because I was just like that, well, why? Why? Like, this is terrible. And then it just popped up on my playlist one day. And I was thinking in those three to four months, like, why am I so sad? Because, like, celebrity deaths, like, I've had deaths in my family and friends. And, yeah, I couldn't figure out why I was so upset. And then I had a couple drinks one night, and I was listening to Lady Stardust and was like, oh, I totally get why. It's because I am not ever going to tell this man how much he has shaped my life. Because when people have a hero, I think, most people anyway, yeah, and I was so mad that I couldn't tell him how much he, he meant to me. And I was just pissed off and then kept listening to the music and just kind of slowly let it go and was just realized that, you know, even though that I never got to, to know him, like, he sure as fuck knew who the hell I was. <laughs> With grandiose electric guitars, theatrical vocals, cinematic strings, and vibrant flourishes from saxophones and pianos, the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust in The Spiders from Mars was a sonic outlier. Paired with an operatic saga unfurled in lyrics of an interstellar martyr who saves the world before tragically becoming a victim of his own fame, this album was completely unfamiliar for rock and roll at the time. But what was the intention of this alien? Songs like Starman and Ziggy Stardust made it clear these space invaders come in peace, celebrating safety out in the unknown. It's an album for all the outsiders, a global signal broadcasting the message not to fear the weird, they're friendlier than you think. Our next storyteller, Nathan Hesselink, professor of ethnomusicology at the University of British Columbia, caught that signal with his son after a move across the world, which might as well have been a different solar system. So it's the summer of 2011, and my family is busily preparing for our imminent departure to England for a year where we're going to live. And the reason that we're going is because it's my sabbatical. It's my first sabbatical. And for those of you who don't know about the more arcane features of academic life, and there are many of them, uh, one of the better ones is after six years, traditionally, after six years of hard work, you're rewarded with a year off. Now, it's not really a year off, but it's a time to kind of reboot and to think about new classes and to do new research and basically to sort of um, get your life back in shape after you know, kind of the brutality of, of six years of teaching. And so this was going to be a really big deal for me and for my family. And there were a bunch of reasons for this. First, of course, we were returning to England. Um, before our son was born, my wife and I had actually done graduate work in London, and we had lived there. And this was a super special time for us, although it already had been quite a few years beforehand. So we were really looking forward to getting back to England, uh, first having a little bit more money than what we had when we were grad students, but also really getting into English culture. Secondly, it was a brand new research area for me. Um, Lizzie told you that you know, now I'm teaching some elements of British rock, but really, uh, only up until about three years ago, I spent the better part of my career teaching and performing South Korean drumming. And that's something that I still do and I'm still passionate about. Better part of 18 years, I've been mucking about the countryside with drums and gongs on my back and, and talking with a lot of old guys in South Korea and really, uh, a pretty wonderful life that way. But for a bunch of reasons, I knew that for this sabbatical, I was going to do the switch to British rock. And then lastly, 
we were moving to Oxford. And, you know, you don't have to be an academic to have kind of a, a mythical or mystical association with Oxford and the spires and the people and the things that happened there. And so we'd never really lived there before. And so this was super exciting for us. So this is leading up to the departure. Now, of course, at this point in 2011, we have a son. And our son had just graduated from grade seven. And for him, this was going to become sort of a, a tragic thing for him because he had just made a lot of, at the time, he thought were the best friends of his entire life. Uh, we had just moved to Vancouver a few years before then from the States, and so he was really taking on Vancouver as a new home. And he didn't want to leave. Uh, and, and we just moved to a new apartment in the city. And so for him, he didn't understand why we had to leave at this sort of critical juncture in his life. And, um, and so even though then and now, I'd like to think that we have extremely good relationship with my son. At the time, it was really a, a point of contention. There was a lot of tension in the house as we were preparing to leave. So we arrive in England, and as you can imagine, um, it's pretty intense. Uh, it's a new place. It's a new neighborhood. Uh, it feels like a new language every once in a while. Um, new food, uh, new places to navigate. Uh, not new weather, unfortunately, but everything else was kind of trying to figure out what was happening there. And I was settling in very quickly. I, I went to the college where I was associated with and was rubbing elbows with all these really famous professors. And I was meeting grad students and getting my robe all fit for my first high table and all these other wonderful things that I was going to go through. And my wife was getting all set up for all the activities she was going to do, including composing and drawing lessons and all kinds of things. And then there was my son. He had to deal with the local public school, what we would call public school. So for us, we would say grade eight. Uh, I still remember the first day we dropped him off um, after he changed into his new uniform. He realized that this school was nothing like the schools he had been going to uh, here in Vancouver. Um, the secondary school he was attending there was more than 4,000 students. And it was divided into four colleges. And so you had to understand which college you were in. You had to understand where to be, where you couldn't be. You understand what kinds of strange classes you had to take. There were all kinds of funny rules that he didn't understand and how to get around and, and how to navigate all of this. But even worse than that was that within the first, I'd say even four or five days, unfortunately, he came face to face to kind of an age old problem that I think Britain has and continues to have, especially on the playground, is that it's extreme sort of race-based and class-based segregation. And so with my son, they really couldn't figure out who or what he was. Uh, he's half white, he's half Asian, they couldn't really peg his accent. He told him he's from Canada, they, they kind of knew where Canada was, they had no idea where Vancouver was. And so within a couple days they decided, forget about that, we're going to call you the American. And so while he's basically by himself through a lot of this time and in the cafeteria and everything, every day, sometimes even on the hour, people would come up to him and say, hey, how does your cheeseburger taste? Or they would say, can we see your gun collection? And so he probably thought that was funny maybe the first 10 times. But as this continued to, to go on and on over the weeks and the months, we could tell that he was really feeling a sense of isolation. And it was really hard to convince him why we were in England and, and what the big deal was. So it's, uh, it's probably a Friday night. And he'd had a long week at school. And we decided, OK, let's give him a little bit of a Vancouver feel, <laughs> as much as you can in Oxford, uh, outside of the rain. And so we took him downtown and promised him we were going to take him to this really great Chinese restaurant. And there aren't a lot of Chinese restaurants in Oxford. So we said, we're going to go to the best one, and we're going to eat Asian food, and we're going to imagine that we're back in Vancouver, even just for a few moments. And as we get off the bus in city center, and we're looking at the spires 
and the beautiful streets and the side alleys and everything, of course we walked by the gl almost glowing in the dark HMV record store. And of course in England there were still a lot of those stores at the time. And so I said, look, we, we gotta go in. Let's, let's also buy you a CD. I'll buy you anything you want within reason. Let's just go in and see what's there. And so we walk in and right in the front, like in a lot of HMV stores, you have the sale rack, kind of the two CDs for, for 10 pounds or whatever. And so while we're looking through them, there's actually one that seems like it's kind of set apart from all the other ones. And as you can guess, and actually this was very weird when Lizzie asked me to talk about this album, it was Ziggy Stardust. Um, that was the CD, the very first one we bought in England that year. And my son and I both saw it at the same time. And he said, hey, do you know David Bowie in this album? And I said, well, I know it a little bit. I mean, I know his more recent stuff, kind of more my generation of the 80s, but uh, let's, I'll buy that CD for you. So we buy the CD, we have great Chinese food. Okay, it was okay Chinese food. And then the next morning, it's the weekend, we get huge breakfast ready, and we put on Ziggy Stardust. And a whole bunch of amazing things sort of happen at, at the same time. But as the album is playing for both of us, and I knew some of the songs, he had never heard it before, as we're listening to these songs, there are all these things that we're beginning to discover about the album. And all of you know these, but this was, these were all first for my son. For example, the album artwork. Of course, you've all seen the album artwork. It's this kind of weird mixture of cartoons and human beings. And you've got all the band members in this really trippy outfits and super androgynous. And there are some very compromised photos, which probably I didn't want my son to see at the time. But, you know, so he's kind of looking through that in the way of, you know, sort of like a like a woman's, you know, 21 magazine or something like this. And, and then as the songs continue to unfold, we're listening to the lyrics. And the lyrics, you know, they're all over the place. They're kind of a weird sort of hipster ethic to it. But then there's like really old-fashioned kind of rock feel. And then you've got all these references to spacemen and aliens and the apocalypse. And so that's already, I can just see my son's brain is going crazy. And then, of course, there's the music, which again... Uh, and I promise I won't, I could talk forever about the music, but you know, just at a basic level, what amazes me about this album as I listen to it over and over again, is that there's this really amazing balance of kind of old classic rock and roll feel, but it also has the very progressive, almost kind of avant-garde feel, and so the album never feels dated to me. I've been listening to it three times a day for the last week and heard it again two more times here, and I just don't get tired of it, and my son was so drawn into it, and so really, to sort of draw to a close here, what sort of the, the great thing that happened with the listening to that album, really three things that happened. First, my son really started to embrace the kind of outsider chic or the outsider appeal. And so, you know, he, he realized that he could sort of be himself, he could be the, the lone American, which he wasn't really, uh, at the school, and he also began to pursue some really interesting projects at that time. And he felt kind of an affinity for Ziggy Stardust and the whole idea of the alter ego, so that was really fantastic. Secondly, he began to sort of fall in love with British popular culture. And it, you know, I thought it might never happen during that year, but he began to realize for the reasons, many reasons why I love British popular culture is that there's this, again, like this album, this really amazing amalgam of the old and the new informing each other. And that's why I feel that even now when you hear super modern stuff from Britain, there's still a kind of depth or a beauty to it because it's, it's just drawing on this incredible resource, right? Years and years of resource. And then finally, uh, especially for my son and I in particular, is that we began to explore British rock together. And that kind of me coming from the old rock side and him telling me what kids were listening to on the playground. And we sort of found a happy meeting ground during that year and when we returned to Vancouver. And so really, uh, without being overly dramatic about this, it really was David Bowie and especially his alter ego across time 
and now even beyond the grave, that really brought my son and I together in a much closer way at a very crucial time in both of our lives, but also whose music and his art and the whole worldview continues to inspire both of our creative worlds. Thank you. With David Bowie's love of acting, Ziggy Stardust was an immersive performance that became impossible for him to separate with his own offstage self. Fearing that the character would overwhelm his work, Bowie evolved shortly after. But Ziggy Stardust remains the first fully realized persona of David Bowie's career. Ziggy was a moment that would begin a career defined by different identities that Bowie would create for himself, signifying an evolution of his music with every transformation. I wanted to check in on Ken Soy and Lizzie Carp, creators of Record Club, to talk about the Bowie that they love. Hey, guys. Hey. Hi. Lizzie, let's start with you. What's your favorite era of Bowie? So I'm really, I've always been really interested in the Thin White Duke era. The music that was made, especially around 75, so Young Americans, is music that I personally really enjoy. I love how uh, pleasurable those songs are. And the production is so rich. I think about fame and young Americans and how those songs have really been a lot of accessible touch points for people to get to know the catalog of David Bowie. But I still find the character of Thin White Duke really puzzling in a way that only Bowie could pull off. Yeah. He's totally the only person in the world that could pull off the kind of like nickname Thin White Duke. It just sounds kind of weird, you know, like maybe that's the only kind of person that could really do that. And I think that's when he started or continued experimenting with this meta experience of having performance beyond the music be a part of this mythology. And that just continued from Ziggy, you know, throughout the rest of his career. Yeah, for sure. One of my favorite eras is also sort of like very definitive, um, which is the Berlin era, the trilogy. I love Low the most. Low is like one of those records I could put on front to back and just listen to it in the car or in the shower or just in my house any time of day, any moment of the year. And I just love how having both Brian Eno and Tony Visconti in the production side of things and incorporating the new synthesizers and all the different technology that was beginning to become available to them, you can really hear like this sort of like joy but also depression in that sort of experimentation and and how he was in such a weird moment in his life. But this music just was able to do all this articulation of these sort of indescribable feelings of what he I could imagine he was kind of feeling. Because when you think of the Berlin era, you think of this weirdo like eating peppers and drinking milk and like starving himself and only working on music like 24 hours a day and just being ridiculous. Like it just seems so bonkers and that the music reflects that to me. Ken, what about you? So I'm going to have to say that uh, the Black Star, uh, Lazarus era, the final act was um, my favorite. I read somewhere that, you know, it's important when you die to make sure that you plan your death for your family so it makes it easier on them. And I think that Bowie did that for, for his fans by leaving this parting gift, this summation of all his identities in one really poignant and interesting album. It, the, the album sounds 
like experimentation and playing and um, that he still had that curiosity in him. And that even if he didn't die, that that album would still be one of his classics would still endure as um, a really creative phase of Bowie. Do you remember where you were when you heard that he died? I think I was in a car with Lizzie again. I think we're in cars with, I'm in cars with Lizzie all the time. I remember driving up main street in Vancouver with you. And I think we had also just lost Prince, which we've spoken about earlier on this podcast. And, you know, we shared that this project was really built from our own like loss and grieving and trying to capture these stories inspired by losing these great artists. And it's amazing to still talk today. And we're just scratching the surface of these personal memories that go along with Bowie and, it's really shows the staying power of an artist that that had such vision really before their time. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that a lot of the stories that we feature on the podcast don't really tell the story of knowing the artist personally, but it's artists like Bowie that become these personas, that become these uh, these mythologies where we really get to know them and have them reflect onto our lives. And there's something really interesting about that. This, it feels like we end up knowing them in a completely different way. Thank you so much, you guys. Thank you. Thanks. Look up here, I'm in heaven. I've got scars that can't be seen. For our last storyteller, playwright and mental health advocate Kagan Go, Bowie was more than a persona. He was a friend. In 1983, my father, Gopo Singh, was sponsor and promoter of David Bowie's Serious Moonlight Tour in Singapore. Dad almost went bankrupt financing the first big rock and roll concert in Singapore. Initially, Dad contemplated bringing Duran Duran, but instead decided on the rock musical legend David Bowie, considered by some to be the greatest rock musician of all time. That my father, Gopo Singh, was a man who wore many hats. Singapore literary pioneer, doctor, poet, novelist, playwright, nightclub owner, businessman, and entrepreneur. Having entered the arena of live music entertainment, he wanted to make a big splash. He had read an article in Time magazine about David Bowie, who graced the cover of the magazine. He thought if Bowie was on the cover of Time, he must be a big deal. Wheels were set in motion, and my father contacted Bowie's agent, and Bowie was scheduled to come to Singapore for the very first time. My father and I waited in anticipation at the Singapore Changi Airport for Bowie to arrive. Upon clearing customs, my high school friend Bernice Hing presented him with a bouquet of flowers. Bowie towered over everyone. His shock of platinum blonde hair stood out amongst the sea of black-haired Chinese, Malay, and Indian fans who awaited to greet him. He was dressed in a baby blue suit, three-piece suit, and was smoking a cigarette. The photographers were banned from publishing the images of Bowie's arrival in the local newspaper because of Bowie's cigarette. 
Apparently, the Singapore government had a campaign encouraging Singaporeans to quit smoking. Bowie's cigarette was frowned upon by the authorities. <laughs> Already, government censorship had reared its ugly head. My father invited Bowie and his musicians to our home to listen to a live performance by Chinese classical musicians. Bowie's musicians came, but the man himself declined, saying he did not fraternize with concert promoters. My father sent a message to Bowie through his personal assistant, telling her to tell Mr. Bowie he is only a rock star. I, however, am a poet. Boy came hat in hand to apologize in person for his rudeness. My father and Boy talked about music, poetry, art, literature, and invariably the topic straight to politics. My father said that two of his songs had been banned from radio airplay. He said this rock and roll business might seem like just sex, drugs, and rock and roll making a ton of money, but this is about freedom of speech. Perhaps in the West, freedom of speech is taken for granted. However, here in Southeast Asia, I know many writer and poet friends who have been imprisoned for speaking out about human rights issues. Here, we're willing to fight for freedom of speech, even die for it. Boy kicked off his concert with his two band songs, Modern Love and China Girl, galvanized by his band attacking the stage like guerrilla soldiers on the rampage. On January the 24th, 2004, Bowie came to Vancouver for his reality tour, which my father and I attended. We saw an audience with Bowie, a huge lineup of the rich and famous, many of them celebrities and millionaires, waited in the audience with Bowie. He shunned them all but made us the exception to see him. They wondered why these two apparent nobodies had been given an audience to see Boy while they had been rejected. Boy greeted my father and I backstage. Boy embraced my father like two lost long friends who had been reunited after a long time. Boy was a consummate gentleman, kind, gentle, affable, polite, friendly, and surprisingly down to earth. He was particularly concerned about my father's Parkinson's and was concerned about his health and welfare. My father introduced Bowie to me. Bowie surprised me by giving me a friendly hug. I said to Bowie that I was a huge fan. I confided in Bowie that I had a bipolar condition. Bowie said that his brother suffered from schizophrenia and had committed suicide. He said that some of the greatest artists of all time were once considered mad or insane. I said, unfortunately, many of these mad geniuses are oftentimes romanticized and idolized by people for taking their own lives. What happened to your brother was a tragedy. However, you don't seem to indulge in self-destructive behavior or habits. In fact, you are a shining example, a role model of someone who leads a healthy, productive, happy, peaceful, and harmonious life. That's why you're my hero. Boy laughed and thanked me for my compliments, saying that we were in good company. Boy and my father died on the same date, January the 10th, my father in 2010, and Boy this year in 2016. 
Bowie had many personas during his long and illustrious career. Amongst them was the star man made famous by his first number one hit single, Space Oddity. My father Gopo Singh's name in Chinese means precious star. The lasting legacy my father left my family was to savor and cherish the preciousness of being alive. I imagined Bowie and my father reunited in heaven, the star man meeting the precious star. There were two shooting stars shooting across the heavens, illuminating the way for others. They were legendary cultural icons, ambassadors and champions of the arts who believed that artists, musicians, poets, writers, anyone who believes in truth, beauty, justice, peace, love, and matter, not just for our very happiness, but for our very survival. We can all be heroes, not just for one day, but forever. Thank you. And that's Record Club for this week. Record Club is a Kelly and Kelly production. It is recorded on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. It is produced by Chris Kelly, Max Collins, Lauren Berkovich, Dave Shumka, and Jody Camilleri. Record Club is created and produced by Lizzie Carp and Ken Soy. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, spread the word about it, and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Louise Burns. Thanks for listening. <laughs>